stony coral tissue loss disease. Does it ring a bell? No, but it should since it has been attacking coral reefs all over around the Florida Keys since 2014. And we don't know where it came from, what started it, and most importantly, how to stop it. Fortunately, we have people like Tanya Ramsayer, who is the Coral Rescue Project Coordinator with the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission, the FWC, who is working with her incredible team to take healthy corals, put them in aquariums all over the U.S. to hopefully preserve the genetics and the diversity just in case this reef disease continues on. Today she joins me to discuss all about her journey in marine biology, how she got involved with coral restoration and protection, and how and what it looks like when a team of scientists get together to take 17,000 samples of corals off the reef and transport them to aquariums. It would mean that world to me if you could take a moment and review this podcast on whatever podcast playing app you are using, as well as shoot me an email, tag me on the social media, let me know what you think of this episode and of any future episodes. If there's anyone you'd like me to interview or a hot topic you would like to learn about, please let me know. I love hearing from you guys. Oceanpancake.com, oceanpancakepodcast at gmail.com, all of that fun stuff. As well, if you would like to help support me in the work I'm doing and allow me to continue doing this work and interviewing incredible people around the world, it would mean the world to me if you could become a patron or join the fight by getting yourself a Plastic is the Killer t-shirt, all available on my website. Every day, there's a new news story about the crisis facing our ocean, whether it's the plastic issue, overfishing, pollution, If the oceans die, we die. Fortunately, we have plenty of environmental activists, marine conservationists, and eco-warriors who are out there every day fighting to protect our oceans and our Earth. On the Ocean Pancake Podcast, we're going to be hearing from some of them about how to decrease our environmental footprint, go plastic-free, participate in ocean conservation, cleanups, and even maybe some marine science. So, welcome to the Ocean Pancake Podcast, where the goal is sustainability and living a turquoise life. My name is Kat Andreskova, and I'm your host today. Let's get into this week's episode. Welcome to another episode of the Ocean Pancake Podcast. Today I'm joined by Tanya Ramsayer, who is the Coral Rescue Project Coordinator for the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> I am so excited about this episode because I actually got um, y- your contact recommended to me by someone else who was a guest. Uh, on the podcast because they were telling me about the amazing work you're doing. So I'm very excited to share that with the audience and kind of raise awareness about what's happening in Florida. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I'm super glad we were recommended for this podcast and I'm happy to be here. So let's get started. Um, to to kind of, I ask this question of all my guests, what got you involved in like ocean conservation and um, the fight to protect our oceans basically? What's your story? Yeah, so I've pretty much always been really interested in anything related to the ocean. I've just always loved the beach. Um, You know, I I didn't get into diving until later, but as a kid, you know, growing up in Virginia, there isn't too much water, just rivers, creeks. 
but my family would take us to Virginia Beach every summer. And so I got really into surfing and, you know, playing around in the waves and just my first love, I guess, was like marine mammals, which I feel like a lot of us start out that way. <laughs> yeah. We figure out that there are cooler things in the ocean <laughs> than charismatic megafauna. So, um, yeah, I was really into like dolphins and whales, you know, just seeing the dolphins offshore was awesome. Collecting shells, I was really into that. Um, so that really sparked just, you know, my love for the ocean and just, you know, standing on the water's edge and just feeling so small and just wondering what was out there, you know, that really captivated me. So it wasn't until probably my study abroad trip to Belize where I first dove on a coral reef um, is what really, you know, solidified my love for marine science and the ocean in general. So um, yeah, pretty much my career like through my education has sort of led me to where I am now. Um, it's been a long path and difficult path, but it was worth it and it was fun along the way also. So there's nothing else that I really see myself doing other than this. So it's pretty awesome that I've made it this far and, you know, feel lucky to like be able to do this for a living and it's pretty special. Definitely. So you did study marine science or marine biology? I did. Yes. Yeah. So I went to undergrad in Virginia, um, studied biology with a concentration in marine science and a minor in oceanography. Um, so that really helped. And then I did a cool internship, which led me down to the Florida Keys for the first time. So I really loved it down there. It's like the closest thing to the tropics you can pretty much get in the United States without going, you know, to the U.S. Virgin Islands or anything um, or Hawaii, but that's pretty far. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, but yeah, that was really fun. We learned a lot about lobster diseases, coral reefs, you know, just ecosystems in general um, and seeing how all these things are connected. And that really you know, drove my passion for learning more. Um, and then I worked at an aquarium for a while, and that was really fun, just have that hands-on experience with a lot of different types of animals. And I got more experience handling corals and learning a lot more about corals. I was really into the taxonomy of a lot of animals. So why they're named different things and like learning all their scientific names was really interesting to me. And then I just found myself reading a lot and like learning, asking a lot of questions, and I kind of, figured out that I wasn't done learning yet. And I was like, maybe I should go to graduate school and like see how this goes further, you know? And, you know, back then it was pretty hard to get a good job with just a bachelor's degree. So I needed that master's degree to kind of help me along to get a better job or a better paying job at least. <laughs> so it's pretty competitive too. Um, so I applied all over the place. I got into University of the Virgin Islands. Oh, wow. And so I ended up, yeah, I ended up going there. And my advisor was awesome, had a really close group of friends and students. Um, that was our cohort, so it was really awesome. And I actually studied macroalgae on coral reefs. Wasn't coral reefs directly, but, or corals directly, but still on a coral reef. And, you know, this crazy macroalgae is just taking over the reefs. And so we were really curious to like what was driving that. So at least I got to work on coral reefs. Um, that was really awesome you know just living in St. Thomas was amazing and that whole program was really really amazing um yeah that like pretty much kicked off my career as a marine biologist I already have so many questions for you <laughs> just, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just away from the ones I already uh, planned to ask you um there's something that okay. I get asked quite a lot by people who are interested in marine science or diving in general mm -hmm. And that's about working in aquariums. So I have a lot of people ask me, like, ethically, is it a good thing? Or is it, is it valuable? Do you learn a lot? Like, what is your 
personal opinion on that because you actually have worked in the aquarium. I haven't met anyone who has, so this is really great. <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. Um, I feel like people who study marine mammals get that a lot too. Like, are you sure it's okay to have whales in like captivity? But I think it's the same concept for like zoos and everything. Um, yeah. So I think they're really important. You know, the aquarium I worked at, I really liked it because we focused a lot on the ecosystem. So it was called the Smithsonian Marine Ecosystems Exhibit. So we really put on display an entire ecosystem. It wasn't just a couple of fish with some fake rocks. We had everything. We had algae, we had fish, we had, you know, different herbivores that would take care of algae problems. Instead of using like chemicals, we tried to use actual real things that are happening, you know, occurring out in the wild to take care of these problems inside the aquarium. So that was really awesome to me. And that's kind of what, um, you know, attracted me to that job. So I was like, this is so cool. Like, there's this whole ecosystem of like we went away for a week as an aquarist it would still be okay you know if we were gone like this whole ecosystem is just thriving on its own you know we're helping it obviously by feeding them and stuff but it was just really cool to see all of these things like coexisting together and a lot of aquariums aren't like that you know they have fake corals fake rocks you know so it's really special i think that we really you know prided ourselves on the fact that we had this whole ecosystem just contained mm -hmm. in a tank um, and so we actually practiced where we would go out and collect animals and keep them for a couple months and we actually had permits to allow us to release them back into the wild. So we kind of did this like trade-off, it was like a swap, you know, okay, we'll take these fish for a little bit, keep them on display, and then we'll put them back, you know, and then get something else that's new. And we rotated out a lot of our exhibits like that so that our guests were seeing different things. We weren't holding the same animals, you know, captive for years. Um, so that was really awesome to me too, is that we we're able to do that. And we lived right on the water, the St. Lucie area, the Indian River Lagoon, just thriving with all kinds of juvenile organisms that we could collect and put on display. So that was really awesome. Um, yeah, I mean, overall, I think aquariums are just, they're a great education tool, you know, without, you know, me ever going to SeaWorld, you know, would I have the same respect for the ocean that I do now? Probably, because I'm interested in it, but that's not the same for everyone, you know, like, if someone had never seen a dolphin up close or fallen in love with a whale, you know, would they want to protect their environment the same way? I don't know, you know, it's, I think what you can see and what you can connect to really helps you down the road to like care for it later. So I think it's really important that we do have aquariums and zoos. Um, you know, especially if like the animals are taken care of the right way. I think that they're a great educational tool and they, you know, it's a good thing. So. Oh, definitely. I know I always preach to everyone to get into the water and start diving. Um, yes, of course, yeah. that is not possible for everyone in the world. So mm -hmm. I do I do agree with, you know, how valuable zoos and aquariums can be like here in Australia. We have Australia Zoo, which is, of course, one of the most famous zoos in the world. You know, Steve Irwin and everything, his family mm -hmm. is still doing that. And they they have such a big emphasis and I remember going there because my dad really wanted to see it and you know I'm, I don't usually go to zoos but I was like okay dad this is something we'll do together and they they had these tiger cubs and they were playing with them like full-on handling them and everything and I was just standing there in a corner like I hate this um and then I talked to the zookeeper I was like why you know just leave them alone at least and he was like yes but on the same time like these two baby tiger cubs have raised, you know, thousands and hundreds of thousands of dollars from donations because people see them, mm -hmm. they see them being playful and like little kitties, therefore they're more incentivized to donate. So it is that kind of double. Yeah. The, the pros and the cons kind of. Exactly. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I've 
I went to Georgia Aquarium, you know, and saw, like, the whale sharks, and I was just like, oh, like, that tank's too small for them. They're used to, like, the entire ocean, yeah. you know? And it's like, yeah, but if we, you know, sacrifice a couple whale sharks, you know, for somebody to see them and fall in love with them, you know, maybe it's worth it. So I definitely also see the pros and the cons. But yeah, it's as far as, you know, corals go, it's like, you know, they'll be okay. <laughs> but they actually probably receive better care than what they're getting out in the wild right now, too. It depends where you took them from, but. That is very true. Um, but yeah. I like I like what you said. So for people who are looking to maybe get a job in an aquarium or who have had job offers, things to look out for is do they have ecosystems there? Do they mm -hmm. have permits to release fish back into the, you know, into nature? Do they have that cycling? Uh, so those are some of the things to look out for for those people. All right. Definitely. Yeah. Just like the quality of the facility, you know, if they're, you go in there and it's like not looking good. Maybe it's not a place you want to work, but um, yeah, I mean, I'm sure people are going to be the judge of that, so <laughs> okay. Yeah, um, and then the other thing you mentioned is the macroalgae on coral reefs. So that was something people mm -hmm. have mentioned to me as well as I was, because I was working in Africa in the Comoros, and there was basically no one who had any knowledge, really, who, who lived there or worked there. So I was one of the, you know, most knowledgeable people, and I'm not someone with a marine Mm -hmm. biology degree or anything so I talked to a lot of my marine biologist friends and that's one of the things they said is look out for macroalgae macro on the reefs to kind of see the health could you okay. tell me a bit more about mm -hmm. what you found were the causes that caused a lot of these macroalgae blooms um, in where you were working sure yeah so um, in the Caribbean at least in St. Thomas there's a big um, overfishing issue there so uh, parrotfish, which are major herbivores on reefs, they eat all the algae on the reef, which is really good for corals. Um, those are being kind of overfished in the Caribbean regions um, because they taste good. People like to eat them. Um, where, you know, in Florida and the Florida Keys, they're protected. You cannot harvest a parrotfish. It's like a major fine if you harvest any parrotfish because we know now, you know, the importance of them on reefs. In the Caribbean, the management and regulations are a little different. So, People are still eating parrotfish and, you know, their populations are declining, so algae is increasing. So that's a big problem. And then, so that was one aspect of my thesis actually was, does herbivory impact or affect the um, growth of this uh, type of macroalgae? It's called dictyota. It's a brown algae. It's everywhere. It's like a weed. Um, and then the other thing is nutrients. So, you know, you fertilize your lawn, you expect it to grow a lot and flourish. It's the same thing, you know, we have a lot of fertilizer and just sewage runoff from the island. All of that is a lot of nutrients and that can cause algae blooms or it can cause algae to thrive in areas, you know, like the Caribbean. So that was the other aspect of my thesis was do nutrients impact uh, the growth of Dictyota? So we found yes to both. Herbivores definitely play a part in it and it's very important that we have herbivores on our reef. Nutrients, our findings were a little bit strange. Um, so we actually kind of had to do three different experiments because of these weird findings. Um, we're still trying to like pick them apart and figure out what this all means. But we basically found that we added, when we added nutrients, the algae died. Oh. It's kind of the opposite of what you would expect to find. So I've had people joke, you know, they're like, oh, we should just dump a bunch of fertilizer on the reef. It kills all the algae. <laughs> I was like, well, maybe, but it also is not good for the corals. They don't like too much, too many nutrients either. So we're still trying to figure out kind of why that happened. Maybe, you know, the nutrients in the Caribbean are already really high. 
and adding more nutrients to them just totally killed the algae. They couldn't handle it. Um, so there's all these different like chemical things I could get into and like why we think it's happening. Um, yeah, so that part of the piece is still trying to be figured out, but herbivores is definitely important. Nutrients, I'm pretty sure it's not a good thing to have a lot of nutrients on the reef, but we're still trying to figure out what happened with those experiments. So I would love to do that study again somewhere else, you know, like Bahamas or somewhere that, you know, a little more remote and doesn't have all of that runoff or all of that anthropogenic effect from like people. So it'd be interesting to do that again. Yeah, we've been seeing that, I know, on the east coast of Australia because of all the runoff from the sugarcane farms and everything. Mm -hmm. um, yep. Uh, that's impacting the water quality of um, the like Great Barrier Reef catchment areas. They're seeing a lot more of this mi microalgae growth and everything. Um, so yeah, it's interesting. Another interesting point about what you mentioned though is here no one eats parrotfish and not because it's not allowed. Like, mm -hmm. we, have, we have very strict rules of how many fish you can catch. Um, I know this because my partner is a spear fisherman, so when we do go out on the boat, I'm there with a little camera taking photos and he's killing fish. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> cool. Australia yeah. has very strict rules of like the amount of fish you can catch and what species. And the interesting thing mm -hmm. is I was asking, ask, asking him, like, why have you never shot a parrotfish? Like, I've seen millions of them. Like, why? Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, apparently they just don't eat them in Australia. I Like, they don't think they're tasty. It, they just don't, which is fascinating because I know in Africa when I lived there in the Comoros, they loved parrotfish. It was like their favorite food. Um, mm -hmm. The actual, the, the unicorn yeah. fish, those are their like the pinnacle. If they get those, that's like the delicate. Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, so, I didn't know people ate those. That's crazy. Yeah, so it just shows huh. how different like places around the world like prefer different yeah. fish. Um, well, it's probably a good thing that nobody likes spirit fish because they do eat a lot of algae off the reef. So. Yeah, we, we see good. massive schools of them here. Like just uh, last weekend I was out and I was trying to kind of roughly calculate, but there was one school which was at least, you know, 150 strong. Um, That's awesome. And, and yeah. there were several, um, several large males. I think there were about four large males with their mm -hmm. little harem of females. Yeah. And it was just really interesting <laughs> to see because I've never really seen them in like such big congregations mm -hmm. i usually see the one male and like three or four females yeah hanging out. that's really um so yeah that was pretty cool that's anyway. cool did you hear them coming you can hear them crunching from like pretty far away yeah yeah the reefs here well, are so healthy it's it's incredible because i'm in a very isolated part awesome. of australia i'm like four hours north of ningaloo reef um, so it's just untouched by most people. So the coral reef is really healthy. That's I've amazing. seen, I've seen no bleaching, um, at all. I've seen like three crown of thorns starfish, which is something that's a mm -hmm. big issue on the East coast, but yeah. here, here it's fine. Um, good. Awesome. Which is that's good kind of a good segue into the main <laughs> part of this podcast, which is of yeah. course, the work you're doing with the Coral Rescue Project, since you mm -hmm. are the coordinator. Um, can you tell us what coral you're rescuing? What's going on? What's happening in Florida right now? Yeah, so this whole project sort of was born because of this crazy disease called stony coral tissue loss disease, or SCTLD. So this disease is pretty much unknown. We're not really sure what it is yet. Um, it's just, we know it's causing rapid tissue loss on a variety of different corals. 
Um, it's affecting over 20 species of corals, which is a big deal for a disease. Um, most diseases don't affect that many types of corals. Um, so it's a pretty big problem. It's you know wiped out most of the Florida reef tract at this point. It started in about 2014 and kind of, we think it started in Miami and it radiated north and south. And so currently the disease margin is west of Key West. So you can picture it's gone all the way down from Miami, all the way down past Key West, and it's slowly making its way towards the Dry Tortugas National Park, where they have a ton of protected corals that have been doing really well for a very long time. And now it's creeping, it's in the uh, Marquesas Islands, which is between Key West and the Dry Tortugas. So it's this rapid tissue loss that causes like sloughing of tissue, and it just looks really gross. Um, it's almost always, almost always causes 100% mortality on coral colony, and they can't really recover from it. Um, it is responding to antibiotics, so some folks think it is bacterial, but we're not completely sure yet. Um, there's a, this massive, you know, response right now to this disease. It's not even just coral rescue. There's so many other outlets, you know, research, restoration, um, and coral rescue is just one small part of this entire response to this crazy disease. And it has been found in other places like the Caribbean, I think Mexico now, um, Belize. So people are getting very concerned. They're worried um, because it, it is affecting the reefs um, very negatively. And it's, you know, they already have all these things that they have to deal with, like climate change issues and warming temperatures. And now we just slap on this like crazy disease and they just cannot recover. So that's kind of why this coral rescue project was designed was because, you know, it takes a while for research to kind of come through and figure out what this exactly is. So my bosses, uh, Rob and Stephanie, kind of put this whole thing together. We collaborate with a lot of other facilities. Um, NOAA is a big partner in this. Um, and they kind of designed this whole project to come up with a plan to go out and collect corals that are still healthy ahead of the disease margin. And so the whole point of this whole project is to take them, collect them, and we'll keep them in land-based facilities for a couple years. Um, until this disease has moved through the Florida Keys, if it ever does, or once we figure out what it is, you know, we can kind of treat these corals for a certain disease and try to help them out in the wild. So um, this project is just a massive, you know, rescue project. We're trying to collect as many corals as we can. And we're also, um, it's kind of a gene bank, if you must. Um, so we're collecting genotypes or genetic samples um, so that we can genotype the corals. Um, so you can kind of think of it like a seed bank, you know, we're trying to figure out what these corals are, you know, who they're related to, and preserve the, that genetic diversity, you know, in case these are the last of the corals that we ever see in Florida. You know, hopefully it doesn't ever come to that, but, you know, they want to, you know, cross all the T's, all the I's, and just make sure we collect as much information as we can right now. So yeah, it's just this huge project. Um, we've collected over 1,700 corals. Um, out of 4,400 corals is our goal. Um, we currently have corals in over 18 facilities across the country. So we're partnering with AZA, it's the Association of Zoos and Aquariums. So they've um, allowed us to utilize different aquariums across the country that are accredited through AZA. So they're you know, up to certain standards. They have expertise to take care of these corals for a couple years or long-term if need be. Um, so we're partnering with them and we you know, have partners that are these facilities that will take corals 
from us and hang on to them for a couple years, take care of them, nurture them. Um, we're working on some spawning and propagation with the corals so that hopefully when this disease does move through or once we figure out what it is, um, we can eventually put the corals back on the reef and plus some more corals. So we're trying to propagate the corals, have lots of coral babies, put those on the reef too, and we'll have like doubled or tripled the population. Um, so it's this massive restoration project as well. So it's pretty big, it's really crazy and very, very special. It's a really cool project to work on. It sounds really fantastic. And that's a lot of work you guys have been doing. I'm guessing there's many people involved in it. Yes, many. <laughs> I know, I should mention my team, they're amazing. So we work down in Marathon, Florida, which is in Florida Keys. Um, it's a really cool place to work. Um, yeah, like I said earlier, like the most tropical you can get, um, you know, aside from like Hawaii or something, but pretty close to QS, so that's fun. But um, yeah, my team is amazing. Um, Alan, Nate, Colin, we just, you know, they're amazing. I, I wouldn't be able to do this without them. Um, it's definitely a team effort. It's not just me in this. So it's awesome, but. What are, what are the reefs looking like? Like I'm trying to picture what's going on. So it's this massive disease and are, is it kind of similar to like bleaching that it affects like large sections of reef at once? Are we talking, you know, like an entire reef that's just gone? And yes, yeah. Mm -hmm. so, so it definitely affects individual colonies, which is strange. Um, you know, there'll be certain colonies of, of the same species that might not even be affected together. Like you'll have a really big diploria, another like small diploria, and one of them's affected, the other one's not. So it's very sporadic. It's not everything on the reef is just totally wiped out. So it's a good thing, you know, there are a couple of stragglers left that for some reason are not affected by the disease. So in the beginning, I remember hearing a lot of the smaller colonies were actually safe from the disease. So it's like affecting the large, really old corals, which like sucks even more because they're yeah. hundred years old, you know, and they're just totally wiped out. So yeah, we went to a site a couple of months ago um, that used to be one of the most popular sites in the Florida Keys. Um, it's called Hens and Chickens. And I remember seeing a video of when the disease was hitting it the first time and someone just had a picture of a coral, you know, and the tissue was just blowing back and forth in the waves. And it's just like, that is not supposed to be happening. Underneath, it's just all bleached, you know, dead coral skeleton. So oh, it's wow. really sad to see stuff like that. And then to go back to these reefs, you know, a couple months later, algae's already started growing over the dead corals. You can still see the ridges and the outlines in the corals. You can still tell what species it was, but there's no way that coral's ever gonna recover. You know, it's totally dead. Just large corals, you know, as big as a tire or even bigger, so. It's pretty sad to see just very, very old corals just completely dead. And that's so, really that's, scary. Yeah. And when did it start? Like when did we first start seeing these um, incidents, outbreaks? It was in 2014. Mm -hmm. It's actually really interesting. I was talking to my boss at the aquarium I used to work at and we had received some fragments of corals from one of his friends and we we're gonna hang on to them, put them in our aquarium and they're actually saved from the Miami dredging project, which also happened in 2014. <laughs> so we're not sure there's a correlation. I'm not going to say anything like that, but we received corals from him that were saved from this dredging project and we put them in our system. Um, and probably a week later, we, some of our largest corals in our tank that we were, that we had, you know, they're probably 30 years old, totally just lost all of their tissue. And I, I was thinking about that, you know, when I first interviewed for my current job, 
And I was like, hey, Bill, do you think, you know, that was stony coral tissue loss disease? Like, that's kind of what it sounded like, you know, now that I think back on it, he's like, 100%. Yes, I think it was. So it's so crazy that like, the aquarium I worked at, you know, we might have seen one of the first cases of stony coral tissue loss disease, you know, ever. And, you know, he sent off samples of these corals, you know, he was desperately trying to figure out what this was and how to stop it. And I think we ended up losing a couple of corals, but yeah, we didn't know what to do. We were treating it with antibiotics. Same thing what we're doing now, but this was back in 2014, you know, mm -hmm. it's just like, who knew it would blow up and be this bad and like totally wipe out like, you know, thousands of corals throughout the Florida reef tract. So that still blows my mind that like that even happened, but it's how crazy. Do you, how do you treat coral with antibiotics? So there's this like dental paste you can get and you mix the antibiotics with this paste and you kind of just paste it on the tissue margin. Um, so usually you do it like an inch or two away from the margin. So yeah. you kind of do it in a little bit so that you're really getting everything that could be like underlying on the tissue. Um, another method is actually trenching. So yeah, it sounds just as bad as it, it is, but they take like a chisel and just trench this like big line in the coral like a fire break you know and mm -hmm. that just kills part of the tissue they're saving the healthy tissue but killing you know part of the coral just to get that margin right there and then treat that with antibiotics but that works sometimes it doesn't work sometimes the disease progresses over the fire break which is crazy so the interesting thing about the disease is like we don't we don't know exactly what it is so before this job actually I was working in a coral disease histology lab in Virginia and so we're looking at this disease under a microscope, you know, and we had samples that were, you know, not affected corals, you know, to the human eye. Their tissue looks fine. They look healthy. Someone took a sample of that. You look at that under the microscope, it looks just as bad as an affected sample. So it's like to our human eye, we're not seeing the whole story. You know, I think there are like lesions that are starting deep down inside the coral that we're not seeing, you know, with our naked human eye. So that makes it really hard to treat also because you can't tell, you know, it's like people with, you know, like an infection or something, you could be harboring like bacteria and it's just not present yet. So I think that is sort of what's happening and we just can't see it, you know, so we're trying to save the healthy ones that like look healthy, you know, but how do we know that they're hundred percent healthy? We don't really. So yeah, I it's a lot of, unknown, but yeah. You can't really take samples of every single coral that you're putting in different aquariums, but then there's also the fear that you're taking some unhealthy ones and then potentially mm -hmm. spreading it to the, okay. Yeah. Big, sure. <laughs> big problem there. I see. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of unknowns just cause we don't know what it is yet, but mm -hmm. so far we haven't had any problems with any of the corals we've collected. Um, you know, they've shown some signs of stress, obviously just from being in an aquarium and being collected and handled. They don't like that very much. Um, but yeah, I mean, we take our, our requirements for taking a coral, they have to be pretty much perfect. So we look at them, make sure there's like hardly any old mortality, no bleaching, no scratches, nothing. It has to be perfect coral. And those are the ones we take. So we're not taking any that are questionable or, you know, we don't want to have any problems once they're on land. So. And what does, a, what does rescuing coral look like? So you get in there with your scuba gear and, you know, chop down these plate corals or can you describe the process of <laughs> yeah. getting these corals into the aquariums? 
<laughs> yeah, so it's pretty crazy. So, I mean, your whole life as a marine biologist, they tell you, don't even look at the corals wrong, don't touch <laughs> them, nothing. You know, and here we're jumping in with a hammer and a chisel ready to like hack them off the reef. So I still remember the first coral I had to do that with. I was like, oh my gosh, like, are we sure this is okay? Like, I feel bad, you know, <laughs> hacking them off the reef. And you have to be very gentle. You don't want to scratch them at all. I'm sure you know how like sensitive their tissue is. Yeah. Um, yeah, so basically, so I guess all of our cruises so far we've done are on a liveaboard. So it makes it a lot easier to collect a lot of corals at once. So it's a team of about 12 scientists go out on a liveaboard boat um, for three or four days we're diving and collecting corals. So we do four hour long dives a day. Um, and then in between we're, you know, measuring the corals, mounting them. But so it's usually dive pairs of two. So we, you know, have two, two divers, hammer and chisel. Somebody's carrying a bag full of like Ziploc bags. Uh, we have a camera to basically jump in, go down, start looking for, you have certain, a number of species that you can collect per group um, so that not everyone's collecting the same thing. Um, so we'll go look around, you know, be like, hey, look, that's a great coral. Like go swim over to look at it, pull some algae away, make sure it's really good. You know, signal my buddy over, like, come look at this. Like, you think it's good? You know, they're like, yeah, it's great. Let's collect it. So we take a picture of it before, just to make sure, you know, get it a good picture of like how it is on the reef. Um, take the hammer and chisel, like gently tap it around, you know, the base of the coral. Depends, I guess, which coral or which species you're dealing with, but some just pop out of the reef really easy. Some, you know, you're hammering away for a couple minutes, just trying to get through the, the reef almost. Um, some of those we just, you know, we're like, it's not worth it. We'll just go find another one. <laughs> but your whole arm's going to fall off <laughs> trying to get this coral off the reef, but some come off pretty easy. And then um, each coral gets its own tag. So we'll have, you know, the site, the species, and then it gets its own number. So it'll be like Mia 2 or whatever. And we hold the tag out, take a picture of the coral with the tag. The coral and the tag go in a Ziploc bag, in a larger bag that the dive buddy is carrying around. That's a pretty fun job too. Just inflate your BC a lot, carrying this giant bag of corals around. <laughs> Not fun in a current though. <laughs> Um, and then the other person just has a hammer and chisel, gets to swim around and you both scout and look for corals. Um, and usually you come up, you know, after an hour or if your bag gets too heavy, because these corals are pretty heavy. Um, but we can only collect corals between 15 and 30 centimeters. So we want them big enough to be able to spawn, hopefully, or reproduce, um, but not huge, you know, tire sized corals that are gonna take up our whole boat. <laughs> so. And we have to worry about, you know, space on the boat for all of these and mounting them on tiles uh, and making sure none of their tissue is like touching the tile. So there's a lot that goes into like what, which corals we collect. You know, you don't want a crazy tall one that's like not even going to fit anywhere. Or you don't want a huge one or you don't want one that when you chisel it, it's going to break in half. You know, you have to be really selective on which corals you're collecting. Um, but yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty fun. It's I love it, you know, just being able to dive for three or four days in a row is really fun to me and we all get along in the boat really well. It's just a really good time overall. And then, you know, it's a lot of work. Like it's not just diving and then you have a surface interval, you know, we have tasks to do topside on the boat too. So it's measuring the corals, taking that genetic sample, mounting them, making sure all the bins we're holding the corals in for four days are good and all those corals are healthy still and happy. Um, so there's a lot that goes into each cruise and you know, after that, we'll offload at one of our intermediate holding facilities. 
So right now it's two universities that we've been using, um, Nova Southeastern University in Fort Lauderdale and uh, University of Miami in Miami, Florida. So we offload at either of those facilities and then those corals are held there until we're able to ship them out to the different aquaria across the country. So it's very extensive. We definitely need a big team to do all of this, but it's fun. I mean, we have a great time and I really love all my coworkers and they make it really fun too. Yeah, and then hopefully, you know, you're getting some peace of mind that the coral, um, uh, what's it called? <laughs> the stony coral tissue <laughs> loss disease isn't going to be progressing for the next many years. But I had no idea it's been happening since 2014. Like, I mm -hmm. feel like it should have been mentioned somewhere. Like, there's been no coverage or hardly any coverage in the media or anywhere. Yeah, I think it just ramped up, you know, in the last year, year and a half, for some reason. Um, and people are, you know, we're starting to notice it a lot more, um, just because it was taking out these like really iconic reefs. Mm -hmm. You know, it started in Key Largo, and you know, people were freaking out, you know, like, what is this? What's happening? And then, you know, that's when this whole coral rescue plan was kind of developed. And then there are many other groups working on this, you know, there's a restoration ecology team at FWC, at my office, working on restoration trials. So they're actually trying you know, different techniques of like outplanting these corals to try to, you know, asexually propagate them like faster. Um, they're trying different antibiotic techniques, you know, different interventions um, to try to combat this disease. So people are working at it from all angles and it's, it's progressing, but it's slow. But, you know, I think our group, you know, we, we thought something needed to be done instantly. You know, we were yeah. like, we can't sit back and watch all these corals die while we try to figure out what it is. So that was really important that we kind of got this going and we're still fighting the clock, you know, it's still, the disease is still progressing and we're trying to get our next cruise organized, you know. And the issue now is just the land on space, or the, sorry, the space on land. So, yeah. you know, we're waiting for other facilities to come on board that can hold, you know, 100 plus corals. That makes a huge difference. You know, we're talking, we're not even at our halfway point yet with the number of corals we've collected. and. I don't know if anyone expected it to be this big, but it's, I think we're, we have a new facility coming on board that can hopefully take a thousand corals. So that would be amazing, very helpful. Um, but right now we've been postponing our next cruise just because we don't have that space on land yet. So we fight against the clock, but also, you know, against the disease progressing and trying to find space and surface area on land to hold all these corals for a while. There's a lot, a lot happening. Um, just Going back slightly, um, you were mentioning the size of the coral samples that mm -hmm. you're collecting, which was between 15 and 30 centimeters, uh, because you said they have to be big enough to spawn. So I don't actually know about when, when do corals start spawning? What, what size is it or like what makes them sexually mature, essentially? Yeah, so I think that is still pretty understudied um, and we a lot of these species we're dealing with people aren't they don't know, you know, and that's what's really cool about this project too is that we're learning a lot about these corals just by having them in our, you know, near us and like watching them in an aquarium, you know, a lot of people are, we're just learning so much about them because some of these species have never been held in captivity before, oh, let alone, you know, we haven't seen them spawn ever in the wild or in an aquarium. So it's really like groundbreaking stuff and it's given us a cool opportunity to like observe these corals, you know, outside of their normal habitat. So um, yeah, I think ideally like corals need to be, you know, decent size to be able to spawn. Um, I think it varies um, on species. 
but I don't know, even some like sick corals or corals that aren't in the best shape, you know, you wouldn't expect them to spawn because they're stressed out or whatever. They still end up spawning. So it's, the corals are just blowing everyone's minds. You know, they're like, I wouldn't expect you to spawn. Like you, you're going to spend your energy on that. Okay. And then they just spawn and it's like, I don't know. It's like a stress thing. Like they're like, this is my last chance. Like, let them go. I don't know. <laughs> so we're still learning a lot about that. And we had a, a lot of our um, rescue coral spawn actually in the fall. It was really amazing. Um, you probably heard about Florida Aquarium. I don't know if you heard about them. No. They had some of their uh, pillar corals spawn, which is the first time that's ever happened in captivity. Oh, really? So, really cool. Yeah. And they have larvae from that. And they have larvae from our um, Pseudodiploria strigosa. It's um, called a pister. They have like, I don't know, I think 30,000 babies or something from that. Yeah, Amazing. I think another species too, they have babies from that too. And it's, they settled, you know, met up, fertilized, and now they're just coral babies. And that's like what we want from this project, you know, maybe not 30,000, that's a lot to deal with. But <laughs> you know, the more the merrier, we just need space for them, you know, to grow up. So that's another issue. But yeah, it's pretty cool. And we're just learning so much, you know, about all of their abilities, you know, to propagate sexually and asexually. So it's really amazing. That's, that's really cool. I've done some volunteering with various coral restoration projects in, in Australia. Mm -hmm. And one of my episodes on the Ocean Pancake podcast with Hannah Kish, we talk a lot about um, different technologies that, because she's also been in Florida and worked with the Coral Restoration Foundation there. Okay. Um, yeah, cool. And now she's with the Reef Restoration Foundation in um, Cairns on the Great Barrier Reef. So it's really cool to see the the asexual reproduction of these corals and how it's working and they have mm -hmm. outplanted already a couple hundred I think back on the reef but Australia doesn't have this um, tissue disease which is good so far hopefully yeah. it doesn't spread but since we know so little about it we actually don't know how it spread and so that's right yeah so some people think it's you know like ballast water or the kind of like biofilm that accumulates on boats mm -hmm. um those are a few ideas but yeah we're not sure yet could be even dive gear you know people in the keys have been disinfecting their dive gear just to try to like eliminate the transport between reefs um since we don't know you know what it is or how it spreads so yeah it's crazy. taking all the precautions we can um for Definitely. people who want to help out or get involved is there anything they can do? Is there, you know, like awareness spreading they can do or donations or is there any volunteering? What can people do to help? Yeah, I wish FWC was better with, you know, having volunteers. It's pretty hard to volunteer with us for some reason, but um, yeah, <laughs> um, I would definitely say, you know, the awareness is like a big deal. Just, you know, spread the awareness, you know, spread the knowledge around a few you know, are interested in it. We have a bunch of websites like on myfwc.com. People can go check out articles on the disease. Um, if you're a microbiologist or a disease ecologist, you know, helping figure out what the disease is, that would be helpful <laughs> if anyone's interested in that. Um, you know, even in Australia, I'm sure, you know, if there's a graduate student or somebody who needs, you know, a thesis idea, that's a hot topic right now that, you know, everyone in the disease realm right now is trying to figure it out. So, if anyone, you know, has any information or knowledge, you know, they'd want to share, that'd be awesome. Um, we also have a dashboard through Coral Rescue that people can track our progress on. It's kind of a fun little interactive tool 
Um, you know, for people in the United States, if you're living near one of the aquariums that's holding our corals, you can go visit and check them out and look at them. They're pretty awesome. <laughs> it's really cool for us. You know, I'm uh, here in Virginia. I think I'm going to go check out the corals we have at the National Aquarium in Baltimore. So that'll be really special just to be like, I collected that one, you know, and like, you just remember out of 1700, it's crazy that you can remember a couple corals, but I'm like, I remember that one. You know, I collected that one. It's so pretty. <laughs> like it's doing well. So it's really fun. But I have, you know, family across the country. I'm like, you guys should go to like this aquarium and, you know, check out the corals. And they're like, oh, what? Yeah, we want to go. So I like encourage people to do that. You know, some of them are on display. Some I think are kind of a behind the scenes tour, but I'm sure if you asked any of the aquarists, they'd be more than happy to like show them to you or talk to you about the project. So I know they're excited and it's a good educational tool for those aquariums too, to kind of spread the knowledge and the awareness of what's going on in Florida. So yeah, yeah, it's really cool. So pl plenty of stuff you guys can do, anyone listening, whether you're in Australia or in America. Um, Definitely. I think, <laughs> I think the awareness is the biggest thing because as I said, like I haven't heard about this and I work mm -hmm. in the field. So it's kind of, um, I don't know, kind of stressful that a lot of yeah. these massive environmental issues that we are facing is mm -hmm. like, are not mentioned anywhere or. Yeah. It is crazy. I remember hearing about, you know, the disease at first and I was like, just trying to look up past diseases, you know, like white plague or whatever, you know, it's like, well, what did we do to combat that? You know, how did we figure that out? And it's like, again, you know, it was like years of research trials, you know, people were trying antibiotics and different things, you know, um, it depends like what the disease is, but it's just, I was like, all right, what kind of track, like, can we go on to try to figure out what this is? You know, have other people seen this like in Hawaii or in the Pacific, like what, can we do, you know, and I think it's a great learning tool for everybody. Like, you know, if Australia for some reason had this, another crazy disease that came through, you can kind of learn from like this whole project, you know, and what we've been doing, if, you know, hopefully that never happens, but if we ever needed to, you know, it's very collaborative, not just in Florida, but you know, globally. Definitely. We're just, we're just combating the crown of thorns right now. That's our big mm -hmm big problem yeah. we're facing on the east coast <laughs> for sure. yeah we have lionfish and stuff you know all over the keys so that's a big problem too but not directly impacting corals like the crown of thorns are but yeah that's pretty wild <laughs> i'm i'm very excited because i'm getting one um one of the people who works on the crown of thorns control boats to to be on a future episode of the podcast and we've been exchanging a few emails and like oh, one cool. of the biggest thing is like we can't say anything that might like cause political like issues, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. really, it's really touchy. And this is also a very difficult part about all this environmental stuff is, mm -hmm. it is the, the politics associated with it, you know, and as much as I'd like to be able to separate them, the environmental issues and the oceans are very much closely, you know, related to the economy and Definitely. Yeah. I was going to say, you know, another way for people to help is, yeah, get out there and vote, you know, your yeah. local government, you have a voice and you affect, you know, the changes that happen. So it's definitely very important. Um, which, <laughs> again, leads us perfectly to the last question that I ask all my guests on the podcast, which is what would be the one piece of advice you would give anyone who wants to help our oceans uh, or our planet in general? What is the one piece of advice you'd give them? that they can do right now or today? I would just say, you know, educate yourself, like learn as much as you can about different topics, you know, 
learn both sides of things too. It doesn't need to be a pro or a con or, you know, you don't have to be one-sided, learn both sides and learn how to, you know, defend or argue both sides um, of any environmental issue, I guess. Um, in regards to like the coral disease, you know, the water quality is definitely affecting, you know, the corals in general. So, you know, just obviously I always tell people to recycle, like, you know, watch your like single use plastics and all of that. And like, you know, I always harp that, you know, it's not just straws, it's like every type of plastic, you know. I tried for a while to be like zero waste and do all that and like eat way less seafood, know where my seafood comes from or know where all my food comes from. That's important. So just like reducing your footprint, you know, in general, I think would help. If everyone did that, you know, it would help a little bit. Um, I just hate that some people are like, well, I'm just one person, you know, it's, it's not gonna make a difference. It's like, well, if everyone thought that way, yeah, it's not gonna make a difference, but if everyone did a little bit, it makes a huge difference. So I think that's really important. Yeah, I like I like always reminding people like, every every choice we make is one choice that can be made for the planet or against the planet, so. Exactly, every, I agree. Every decision, you know, can be a small victory. So we just have to, see it from that perspective and I, I really like your attitude and thank you so much for you know <laughs> explaining this in such a way that it doesn't sound so scary and like, <laughs> really showcasing all the positive things that we're learning a lot about these species we're being able to observe them in captivity how many amazing you know uh, aquaria and facilities across the country are you know pulling together to help this so it's really it's really cool to hear about you know people working together to, to try and help protect the reefs so that's great definitely yeah it's very collaborative and I'm really excited to be a part of this um, so thank you so much for joining me here and um, hopefully we can have you back in maybe a year or something and you can give us a progress update on what's happening hopefully by then we would have found the cure and <laughs> we know what's going on with the I hope so. coral disease <laughs> yeah that would be awesome <laughs> Once again, Tanya, thank you so much for joining me on this week's episode. I learned so much from this chat with you, and I'm feeling extremely hopeful and inspired for the future. I'm looking forward to very much coming to visit Florida and hopefully um, being able to see some of these corals that you have put into the aquariums. And yeah, just continuing to learn more about what's happening and how we can protect the reef. As always, thank you so much to all you guys listening. Go check me out and Tanya out on all the links and everything that you can find on oceanpancake.com. And yeah, once again, thank you so much to Graham Mose, who is the mind behind the funky beats in this podcast. I'll see you guys in the next episode. <laughs>